2: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When we talk of the power of the modern media, most of us simply mean its considerable influence in shaping societal attitudes and opinions about specific issues, along with, of course, its ability to focus our attention on those particular topics to start with. LSE professor of media, communications, and social theory Nick Coldrey believes that too, of course, but for Nick, the power of the media goes dangerously further than that, playing a principal role in nothing less than defining what it means for something to be politically or socially real in the first place, thereby constructing a societal reality that increasingly appears like second nature to all of us. I did actually want to start with asking you how you began, uh, and I'm hesitating because uh, in our in our email correspondence I talked about media studies and and uh, I'm under the impression that I'm not using the correct expression all the time. So I, I want to get into that as a meta, meta topic. Yeah. But I know that you started off in classics and then you moved into law. And, and so if I'm somebody who doesn't know anything about this, I'm saying, who is this guy? And how did he get to be doing what he's doing? So well, uh,
0: what is your story as it were? Clearly, I'm a maverick. I'm a maverick. I've been all over the map. And uh, yeah, I, my first degree was classics and philosophy at Oxford, typical classic sort of working class scholarship, boy route into Oxford using the classical languages, I get in, they so get interested in philosophy. Um, ideally would have continued with philosophy, but didn't have the confidence at that stage for various reasons oh, really? to remain an academic, perhaps that was a mistake. But, what, um, what part of philosophy interested um, you the most? I was quite interested in philosophy of language, hmm. but also ethics, and uh, because I was doing Greek, we studied Aristotle in sure. Greek and Plato in the Greek, and uh, um, I could have done that. But thank God there was a rather decline in the employment possibilities for philosophers in the nineteen eighties in Britain. So maybe I made the right move.
2: Well, I'm also, I mean, philosophy of language and ethics, as I suspect, we'll see later on in this conversation, that will come into play at some level. So well, it's not as if you've gone completely away from no, that. perhaps I and not in a formal academic sense uh, in terms of philosophy per se, but certainly in a in a a semantic sense and in an academic sense in a somewhat different context. That's my guess, I don't know, because we haven't had this conversation yet. (laughs) You're
0: right, you're right, and we will come back to ethics, and uh, I found myself drawing on that more and more, but at that stage, I didn't think there was a a prospect of being an academic, and I followed my father into the law, which was a mistake, but it was something I turned out to be good at, which was also unfortunate, because I Mm. stayed in it longer than I should have done, so I was... Did, did your
2: father, uh, allow me to interject yeah. for a
0: moment, was your father putting pressure
2: on you to go into uh, the law? Was not this? directly,
0: no. so you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not directly, but uh, uh, you know, it was a sort of class thing. I think I didn't have the confidence to go straight into being an academic, which I desperately wanted to be.
2: So when you went up to Oxford, yeah. was there a sense uh, amongst your family members that, well, he's really in
0: pre-law, as it were? Was mm. there was there a certain? necessarily? they might have thought I could have become an academic, maybe, I don't know what they thought, but I was on this sort of scholarship conveyor just going up somewhere, right? right. <laughs> they didn't know where the somewhere was gonna be, it was just up as far as they were concerned, so. Um, I, ideally, perhaps I would have become an academic at that stage, but I don't regret it, because I became a lawyer Became fairly quickly an unhappy lawyer was reading Foucault and Derrida and New Left Review to Save My Soul and Were the you a evenings. solicitor or were you about uh, to, were was you do, a solicitor? So you weren't
2: doing this actually in the courts themselves. No,
0: no. I didn't I couldn't perform the law. That's one thing as someone uh, on the far left, I guess, and with a sort of some anarchist sympathies, <laughs> I couldn't perform the law. The law for me was always a deep social construction. So hmm. um, when I started to read Foucault, this was felt like a sort of coming home. There was no problem with that. Um, but nonetheless, I was forced to perform it in other ways in a sort of corporate setting or a big law firm, the largest in the world, could a chance. And I very quickly became very unhappy and realized that that type of um, corporate enactment, enactment was completely incompatible with the intellectual person that I was, which you had to deny. So how long did you last before you, you, I you bailed? I qualified for two years then disappeared a, the other side of the world for four months and came back, nonetheless, to law for another five or six years.
2: What was the other side of the world? To Indonesia. Me? I ah. went to
0: Indonesia for travel, but I'd already made up my mind probably to get out two years before I did, because I went back to the city of London to save as much money as possible so that I could get out. Pragmatic column. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So I was doing music along on the side as well, hmm. which was the thing that initially saved my soul, but by chance, Really, by chance, Uh, through a music contact, I heard about a master's in media and communications at Goldsmiths College in South London. And this was the very first year they've run this master's, this cross disciplinary master's. And because it was a very new subject, um, probably about 15 years of existence, still not clear of its own boundaries, they had no problem with letting a maverick in who had good results and seemed maybe to have something interesting. So they let me in. Were they, were, did
2: they look at you as a maverick because you were a lawyer? Or did they look at you as a maverick because you were a lawyer with
0: anarchistic sympathies? Did well, they, they didn't. Look? They probably didn't believe the claims of anarchistic sympathies, they, they saw me as a, a lawyer who was probably out to screw them somehow, but nonetheless they'd take my money, and uh, they realized <laughs> that I was actually you know, quite committed. And after about three or four months, when I was still doing music, uh, I went to some lectures around um, a, the structure of the media industries, but also most crucially by David Morley, who became my PhD supervisor, on the role of the audience, hmm. and he was the leading person in Britain at, at thinking about what audiences do with this thing we call media. And what he, along with others, discovered, is that you can't read off the impacts of media just by reading the text as a literary theorist or a critic It's actually what he called a determinate moment. There is a moment when the audience is watching, when they may be doing something which is not predicted in the text, could never have been predicted in the Mm. text. And I think when I understood that, I started to get the sense there was a subject with quite a lot of depth here. And it, by studying media, I'm not personally, I have no particular interest in media text. I'm not a film buff, particularly, not Mm -hmm. in a way that's relevant the work I do I'm not obsessed with television soap opera I don't love radio to the exclusion of everything else or newspapers what I am in is is someone who's interested in the idea that we can represent the social through text forms which carry a sort of weight so they almost become the social for us and that trick if you like struck me as very, very interesting because it draws you into anthropology, sociology, really mm-hmm. the theory of how societies work at all. So and that's where it started for me in about 1994.
2: So th- let me go back, if I may, to... Uh,
1: I to I'm just getting a bit of crackling on your mic. I
2: just want oh. to straighten out these uh, cables here. It usually helps. Was there a lot? Do you, do you no, want, do you want no. to... just sounds like it. there's a Slight
0: rustle on a few words, but it's... Ah, oh, it's a bit, it was just a bit crunched
1: up. Yeah, so We've that, been uh, Interference,
2: yeah. Some difficulty, you're okay with mine? That's, that's okay still? Yeah, just a Um So, uh, um, I want to see if I understand this point because um, I think it's important for me not to get lost too early on in the conversation. So, my sense when you're talking about the audience is, uh, and, and the audience vis-a-vis the media and the role of society, uh, as, as a point which had initially attracted you and given you a sense of the depth of, of the field and so forth, is almost as if there's, there's, a, there's a dynamic, a two-way street, as it were. So it's not as if uh, texts are created and presented to this external world that absorbs them or doesn't absorb them, but that there's a dynamic coming back from the audience. Is that a fair, is that a fair way that's, to look at it? That's
0: exactly right. And... Um it's true that to some degree literary theory which i was very interested in at that time had anticipated this so there were some work in germany and in america in the 70s and 80s which were thinking about the text that in implied a certain reader that the author had a certain reader in mind and that right. the text created a certain space for the reader to move within and that was a, a revolutionary move within literary theory at the time but Literary theorists and literary critics, by definition, were not people who were doing a sociology of the actual people who did that reading. So the actual possibilities had to remain unknown um, by the literary theorists, which is fine, because that's not what they were trained to do. But when we got to media, texts, which, if you like, can be read by up to 50 million people, or even 200 million people at a time, the idea of not actually trying to find out what those 200 million people were doing, or at least a representative sample of them, was absurd. Somewhat incongruous. <laughs> people still go on doing it, TV <laughs> critics and whatever, but, and film critics who read the film as if it speaks for society in a certain way. But it clearly became ridiculous to ignore the audience. And there was a bit of a battle in the early days of media studies and film studies between the old literary way of thinking to say that a brilliant textual analysis gets you to the heart of the text, the film, Versus the more sociological sense, well that may be true, but it cannot in principle get you close to the actuality of what 50 million people do when they're in front of that text, had to be bridged. And so audience studies emerged, and I just so happened to be really lucky and to find myself in the institution where the leader, the founder of audience studies, worldwide, David Morley was, we got on well, and so I started my thesis with him, Um, but being a sort of contrary, Person, there was no way I was going to do straight audience studies because I already had a number of doubts about how much one could achieve by studying this particular audience of this particular text at this particular moment in time. So I more and more was looking for new ways in, oblique ways at this phenomenon, if you like, of the mediation of society. What difference does it make to the thing we think we know as society or government or any of the big abstractions we? Talk about in the social sciences when we have to, our starting point has to be that these processes work through very complex institutions of mediation, which have their own interests, very particular sites that they speak from, and they make damn sure that someone else doesn't get in to the shot or to the cutting room or whatever. The tremendous power plays involved in the, the process of mediation. What difference does it make to something like a society that is mediated now? My my core question of all my work is how do we do social ontology? How do we mm-hmm. think about the things that are the social, are social, in a society where they have to pass through a process we call mediation, which is an abstract way of talking about all the things we call media. That's my core question. And I started that from early on under David Morley, as I said.
2: As you're speaking um, and having some awareness of, of some aspects of of your later work, it seems to me, uh, as a complete non-expert who's who's listening to this, that that a vital aspect of this is that in this relationship between the audience and the media, the audience is not just, not only is the audience absorbing or not absorbing this material, not only is the audience being more active than that and participating, but there is a self-definition. When you talk about social ontology, there is a sense of who are we as a society? And so we are not only reacting to this in an active participant, but we are in fact defining ourselves on a societal level. And this, it seems to me, is is quite a deep point that you're, that you're talking about. Is this, is this really what you mean by social ontology, or is this an aspect of it at It's least?
0: one aspect of it because certainly uh, people uh, for more than a century have been encouraged to see themselves as members of the audience, the audience for television, for radio, the readership of a, a newspaper, whatever. We're coming to the end of that period where the notion of the audience is a clear role and It defines a clear group of people because there's a crisis coming to media institutions at the moment, which we'll come back to later. But certainly for a century or more, societies, governments, corporate advertising, been based around the assumption that there was a group of people, more or less defined, or who could be called the audience, who were the recipients of the processes of the media industries, and certain types of effects could be assumed from that. For example, Basic awareness of what the government was about to do when it was going to go to war, or basic awareness of the key brand and fashion signals of the age, because they had some awareness of advertising and so on and so forth. Um, we're coming to the end of that period where that can be assumed, but that used to be assumed. However, it's more than that. Some people, from a let's say a political economy perspective, perhaps a Marxist view of me, I'm you know, not uh, unsympathetic with Marx, but I. Uh, if it's not complete, um, would say, well, that's really enough because we understand the economic determinants of the medium industries. We know what drives them. We know what they have to do to make their profit. They will do it. They do it very well. They will produce the audiences who can then watch the ads and so on so the programs can be funded and this and that.
2: And that's the filter by which one one looks at it.
0: Well, that's one easy starting point. And I wanted to react against that as well because the audience perspective always said that's not enough because the audiences are maybe doing things that neither the economists nor the, uh, the business people or accountants can predict. They're doing what they're doing. We need to understand that. And there's another level to it too, which is that as I started to think about what my angle for thinking about media institutions would be, not the text, but the institution that we call the media, you like, I realized that this was much less certain and much less studied. How is the legitimacy of media institutions itself sustained? I mean we, we have at least until recently and uh, because this has stopped it 's now a big shock for everyone, but until recently, the assumption was that you certainly had a TV you watched a lot of TV within a certain uh, average level. Um, you may have had radio, and they the a newspaper, and so on, and you were broadly oriented towards whatever was on the media wall. Um, now, I never really started from that assumption, because I was always intrigued by the possibility that you might turn your back to the wall. You might swivel round and pay no interest in the media whatsoever. I once met a decorator who came to decorate my uh, apartment, and I said, what well, media do you watch? This was before I was doing media. And he said, I never watch any. I just listen to music. I just put in great music all day, and that's it. Why should I listen to that stuff? He was the only person I ever met who had that view, who felt, trusted the world enough that he could turn its back to the media world. Do you still have contact with, this,
2: with this decorator? I no, would, I would I hang know. on to that decorator like grim like, like death. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> quite a good
0: decorator, but, <laughs> but that because of its extreme rarity, it made me realize when two or three years later I got into actually writing, that there was something, the rarity had to be produced because his reaction was perfectly a possible one. But actually it's extremely rare. And that gave me the clue that media institutions actually have to work very hard to produce a situation where they are our automatic port of call when we want to find out what's going on, as we say what's happening for yeah. us and what's real in society and so on. And that was really the start of my work because I then realised that one could use anthropology, sociology to understand those sort of hidden processes which the media never wants to talk about because it wants them to be precisely taken for granted exactly. that actually underlie their legitimacy as media institutions. That was where my work really started out of that puzzlement and I found that this had been really not studied because media studies at that point trying to justify itself by saying this is an academic subject and media are really important had precisely not looked at that foundation because that would have been to expose the very uncertainty that it couldn't expose at that early stage of its formation but at that point it became possible so that's what i did
2: so you were right at the at the threshold as it were of the field developing Let's just say a deeper level of maturity by being able to examine its own roots by being going to the meta level and saying, well, what actually are these? How are these institutions found? How do they get into yeah. our into our heads?
0: Well, it might sound a bit grand to put it that way, but I think I was oh, I part put it that way.
1: So. Yeah, that's
0: nice. <laughs> I couldn't put it that way. But there were. I think what happened was, and some things got a little bit clearer looking back. Uh, I felt the move I was making that, that that stage seemed a bit almost crazy. People didn't have a clue what I was talking about. Um, Partly because I decided that if this process was such a broad one, society-wide basically, didn't just happen in the media studios. Otherwise, how could it affect the rest of society? It happened to be happening everywhere. As Foucault understood power to be happening everywhere. Then the range of things one would look at to understand this would be very broad. So in my thesis I, for example, looked at on the one hand, people going to sites of filming of TV programs, pilgrimages if you like, to the, pl- the real place where it happened, in the crime show, soap opera, whatever. Because I felt that was a clue to this sense of how place is built through media, this real place. Mm. On the other hand, I looked at protesters who were not interested in media at all. They were interested in getting their voice out about animal rights or whatever it was. And they would go to wherever they needed to be to make that protest. But then the media would come to them, or not and they would realize what it would take to be in the shot rather than not in the shot. So the media would go from being something entirely intangible and just assumed to be something extremely real, that they fought over literally to be in the mm-hmm. shot.
2: So what the metrics are of being, being yeah, there. Literally
0: being... the metrics in the physical action, they had to act in a certain way, they were gonna be in the shot, not the other guy. Which meant that in both cases, for totally different reasons, People had to act out and bring to the surface the deep assumptions they had about why media were important and what one had to do to be in this important thing called media.
2: Did they have to? Did they have to bring them to the surface, or were they implicit? I mean, if they well, were, they were assumptions... implicit.
0: They were implicit. But, but when I mean bring to the surface, I'm drawing on um, a, a strand of sociology called ethnomethodology, uh, Harold Garfinkel, which was looking at the sort of deep underpinning assumptions of. Social interaction, which never come to the surface, because they simply don't need to, unless someone disrupts them, and then they have to be brought upon to repair the situation. So I had the instinct that one could do the same with in relation to something as deep as media power, that it was very hard to get to people to talk about, "Well, why do you switch on the TV at nine o'clock every evening? Tell me why you do it?" They said, "Well, you just do. you know. <laughs> what else do you expect and so on. But there are, very, there are elaborate reasons why that is a meaningful act. And you have to draw them to the surface. And you do that by either by disrupting that, taking people's media away. Well, that's not wasn't in my power as a researcher. Stu- uh, lecturers sometimes do that with their students in Media Studies 101, <laughs> which is a good experiment. But I did it in a more natural way by studying people who were up to the media apparatus in an unnatural way for the first time because they were very close to it. Normally the media is very far away. Or again, it was in the, pre, in the mass media era. Now maybe media people hold the, hand, uh, the tools of media in their hands. So things have changed and we'll come back to that. So because I was, had a very broad view of what was relevant to understanding the power of media, initially many people couldn't understand what the hell I was talking about. It turned out that around the same time in anthropology, uh, some anthropologists were getting more and more interested in, in media too, uh, Fay Ginsburg and New York and others. And again, they weren't interested in media studies and this text, how it's produced and who read it. They had a much more fluid view of how text circulated and so on, as you'd expect from anthropologists. And they too were interested in the sort of social forms that could be built out of that very fuzzy, messy thing called circulating of media. And I only realised that sort of commonality around about 2003 or four, hmm. when I saw that. And then, when I looked back, I realised that a number of people who've been doing audience studies and studying media in a broader way were also coming to this paradigm shift that, 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 to understand media as a much broader process. Did you, so did you, did you
2: develop active collaborations with some of these sociologists at, the, uh, at that point? Because it seems like what they're doing is very similar to what you were just describing.
0: Well, I didn't have the chance to develop collaborations. I've actually just come from meeting someone who's an anthropologist here at LSC who has a similar view of media. And paradoxically, he joined LSC around the time when I was here in 2002 or 2003, and was interested in ritual and knew about my work on the ritual sides of media, but we never met um, because of the way uh, academic politics works, I guess. Because you need to remember one other thing, that at that time, more in Britain than in the States, uh, media studies was a very um, uh, dominated field. It had very little confidence in itself. Dominated many, by, by well, dominated by the rest of the academy. And I don't, I'm not complaining here, it just was a very new subject, dealing with something that many people regarded as quite trashy, uh, not serious, not academic serious. And, and it had to fight quite hard to convince those who were clearly all doing serious work in serious disciplines that here was a new subject a new sort of depth in the social terrain that also had to be taken really seriously and mm. it's fair to say that a lot of sociology many of the books on these shelves written in the 70s 80s 90s even early 2000s don't even mention media mm. they they were written as if media did not exist it's only really in the past five or eight years that that's become a an impossible uh, starting point. So that complicated things, but um, it was under those sort of slightly awkward contexts that I developed those ideas about studying media in a much broader way, but always trying to hold on to one fundamental point that not only are media involved in these very broad social effects, so for example, um, when in 1997 Princess Diana died in Britain, People were already saying that attention for mass media was declining because we had lots of TV channels, as mm. if that was gonna change everything. And they said, no, no. You'll never be able to have a big media event anymore. Princess Diana died and there was a very big media event.
2: It was enormous, it was one of the largest one I can, Well, I'm, I'm sure you yeah. can correct me, it's certainly well, the largest one I can ever remember.
0: It uh, was one of the largest and the way it worked proved to me I was just a year out from finishing my thesis. The most astonishing real world um, confirmation that I was on to the right sort of line because my prediction was that one could use classical anthropological theory of pilgrimage, of liminality—those moments when we seem to be outside time and place, and we seem to be together with each other, close to each other in a more direct way—which Victor Turner had written about the anthropologists and called it "communitas," special community that sort of grounds our sense we're in something, which is society. Um, There it was happening in front of my eyes. People were making pilgrimages to a place which stood in for Diana because it was the gates to her London home, Kensington Palace, and leaving anything they could leave to touch it, to feel that they had done something that everyone else would recognize as touching this center. And media reproduced that center initially and the circumstances where people were really angry with media because they thought that the paparazzi who had chased Diana were responsible for her death.
2: They wanted them to think that. I mean, there was, a, there was almost, it seemed to me there was a desire for, to, to establish a scapegoat uh,
0: over yeah. this. Yeah, uh, but there were actually good reasons for that. Uh, a piece I wrote at the time, I, I happened to have been tracking these things a little bit, and by chance, I found that just two or three months before, a tabloid newspaper had sort of run a competition for little kids to chase after Diana and take a nice picture and give her, they gave them a hundred quid or whatever. Uh, and they said, great paparazzi, well done, even a good media person. Uh, three months later, this was regarded as beyond the pale, was mm. unthinkable aggression and so on. So there was a tremendous double standards about this. But again, around that moment when people were chasing cameramen and getting angry with them, the Normally, completely naturalized mechanism of the media that's so natural we just look through it at the world, we don't see the frame, it was suddenly becoming denaturalized and people were seeing the cameraman and getting angry and so on. This was a remarkable period. It then calmed down, of course, and the renaturalization happened, and there was the Westminster Abbey service, and everyone ended, looked through the frame of the television broadcasting again. So That was a sort of confirmation for me that involved in studying media was it wasn't just a narrow subject, maybe industry interest. This actually what was at stake at certain times was society's understanding of itself, the very possibility of going on as a society, Um, or at least the illusion that we had a sort of freedom here, and that was at stake at certain points. So. that was that was quite exciting to, to get that confirmation from the outside and totally unexpectedly the, the approach that I was taking. I want to ask you a, a question
2: probing this notion of ritual pilgrimage mm. in this particular yeah. example. So some people might say, I've certainly heard people say that to take again the uh, the event of Princess Diana's death, that the reason why there was this this overflow of emotion and the reason why there were these pilgrimages and that this this overwhelming societal need to manifest a sense of ritual is that in our contemporary lives, so many of us do not have the sort of rituals that we used to have. People used to go to churches on a regular basis. They used to be participating in the ritualistic life, and through whatever means, they found themselves in a, in a scenario where they, they had this lack of ritual to an extent that they might not have even recognized it. Does that ring true to you does that does that have anything to do with reality and and where does media come into play when it comes to ritual
0: well it's a good question because it's actually quite complicated. I think there's something to that, um, but it wouldn't get you to the idea necessarily that media are the best substitute for religion. Yes, for certain purposes, media operate in a quasi religious way. Um, we can see the the lineaments um, tracing back to earlier religious practice, however. Um, For me, there was always something else at stake in in media, which we need to remember that media are this massive concentration of symbolic power, if you like. You think very simply what media are, and again, this is not the typical way of looking at media. They are a concentration within particular institutions of the power to describe reality, of the the storytelling resource to say, this is the way things are for you, for us, for me. and that's a very valuable resource. It's a resource that's hard to talk about because one of the great skills of those who possess symbolic power is to disguise Practical the fact habit. they're doing precisely <laughs> that and they won't let you have the, ter- the cri- terms of the critique to and they take it apart, but that's in their power. So symbolic power is enormously important and the most deeply disguised form of power, even more deeply disguised than economic power, I would argue, certainly obviously more than political power. Um, So, there's no doubt that institutions have that power. Perhaps we'll stop in a minute, I'm losing my uh, frame. Uh, I'm forgetting where I was going, so let's just let me... Can you say Uh, your question? uh, The question
2: was about about rituals and then media with respect to the rituals Ah, and and pilgrimages, and you were going to give a...
0: Okay. Um, The thing about ritual is that certainly media to some degree play the role of sort of quasi-religion. We can see that in certain forms. But at the same time, they're in another sort of game, which is holding on to the power to describe reality, holding on to that central social power which they have, that symbolic power. And we have to understand the exercise of that power against the background that we live in societies where very few people have that power. Very few people have their hands on the resources to tell the story of the world. Very, very few. For most people, that power is unimaginable, absolutely unimaginable. And yet, and this is where we get to another side of my work uh, around voice, everyone wants to tell their story in the end. No one wants to die never having told anyone what it's like to be Nick or Howard. Everyone carries a story. That is part of what it is. One of the most important things, things it is to be human, to carry an account of oneself. And so I think I have a sort of split view in relation to what media do on the one hand, I'm trying to deconstruct the power operations that are so hard to get at uh, because they're very important to deconstruct because only in that way do you understand uh, why we have certain stories about society and sure. not others and what's at stake in them. And, on which, the other, and what
2: works, presumably, Yeah, as what well.
0: works, and if it works, what are the consequences of it working that way and certain other stories never getting told, right. being too difficult to tell? And yet, at the other, on the other hand, that might seem that One should be just cynical about those who attempt to break in. Let's say, for example, want to get onto a reality TV show, which is something I came to study more and more in the 2000s. People trying to break into the media operation by being part of American Idol or whatever show it is. But I'm not cynical, and it's important, I think, not to be cynical about that type of attempt, because successful or not, it is an attempt to be recognised. It's an attempt to claim something that is in very short supply which is recognition as a valuable human being um, who carries a story that it's worth others receiving. And so on the one hand one needs to deconstruct what's going on and therefore see attempts at getting into the media within the context of this massive power structure. On the other hand, never to minimise what's at stake personally for those trying to carry those things out. It's enormously important. So I had this double view of the events after Diana died. On the one hand, they could easily be deconstructed from the point of view of anthropology or religion. They, people were doing exactly what you would expect them to do to an extraordinary degree. Hmm. On the other hand, they were also trying to speak. They were also trying to be heard in what for them was enormously important and particular. Their love for Diana, this importance of Britain today where that type of queen could never be queen and so on and so forth. And it was a very particular message, so...
2: And it, it, was, it was spontaneous as well. It was I mean, spontaneous. That, that, that's the other interesting thing. Um, so I wanna talk about, you. We're, we're veering towards quite nicely, I think, um, uh, voices, neoliberalism, yeah. the structure of power yeah. and so forth, and I definitely want to get there. But before I do, um, I'd like to back up a little bit because you mentioned several times that your views were unorthodox, that you were a maverick, that you were looking at things in different ways than, than other people were the state of media studies was, uh, I, I wouldn't say inchoate, but it was certainly in, in its earlier development uh, compared to where it is now, but I guess every field was in its earlier yeah. development compared to, uh, anyway, it, 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 it was at an earlier stage of its development. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and And I wanted to ask you more specifically how other people reacted to this your supervisor presumably was uh, would endorse your views or would endorse your right to have those views or was was supportive in, mm-hmm. in many ways mm-hmm. uh tell me a little bit more about the way yeah. other people were looking at nick coldry at the time and 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 what that was all about
0: well uh yeah i was very lucky to have just the right supervisor who was supportive who could see something and then just let me go really and I was also lucky to have an examiner for the thesis, Roger Silverston, who was one of the very few people studying media at that time who was seriously paying attention to anthropology, uh, had a much broader view of the sort of theoretical resources one could draw upon in studying media, and he was interested in ritual. And uh, that's why, actually, I wanted fairly quickly to come to the LSE, where he was the head of department.
1: So he influenced you considerably? Yeah, he did.
0: Uh, Although, for me, he was not always pessimistic enough about the implications. Sure. But we had that. But he was one of the few people who took that side, if you like, softer, but it's not soft at all in reality. It's very uh, material and it's very related to power questions. That side, that broader side of media. Just to correct something I said in a sense. it's true that the approach I was taking was not one that had been common before, and it was grad- I was one of a number of people who were involved without us almost knowing it, shifting the terrain. But the, that only became possible because the foundations of the field had been laid quite quickly in the first 10 or 20 years. You know. Really good analyses of the production of media, um, the economics of that. Really good analyses of how media texts work, their semiotic complexity, that sort of thing. And then with David Morley, really good studies of what audiences do in front of these texts. So those were the building blocks. But once they were in place, many people mid-90s in the field were thinking, well, where next? The audience is actually infinitely complex. They could be watching one of 10 channels. Which one do we follow? And little did we know what level of complexity was gonna come in the 2000s, let alone the 2010s. But already people were getting worried by complexity. So they started to argue, for example, the audience was undecidable. And has to go out into space somehow and pick up the signals of media influence in other ways. There were clear problems with that. You know, it was going nowhere. So we needed new angles which were sharp and definite enough to get at the enormity of the topic, the power of media institutions, um, but somehow took for granted but went beyond the older approaches. I guess that's in a sense what I was doing. So it was in no way rejecting those early approaches, but it was building on top of them. A, a sort of new and sort of broader way of thinking about media and I think possibly probably all my work has been trying to do that from various angles and I'm lucky that uh, I was at the right time rather at the wrong time and it, many other people were doing that and also the most important point of all the whole media ecology and environment was changing profoundly from the late 90s early 2000s the internet was starting to be known people were starting to realize it wasn't just an occasional eccentricity, it would become a regular and then a dominant part of everyday life, until now we struggle to find a moment of time when we're not in some way connected, and this maybe is problematic, as we'll come to later. So so. the world has almost overtaken those limitations of media studies until we can't almost imagine those early. That's almost inverted, completely. Yeah, it's almost inverted, Uh, and we've lived with that, and we're trying to understand what's going on now. So, I've given you that story because it gives you a sense of how what now seems blindingly obvious had to be fought for a little bit at one point, gradually became possible to say a bit more in public, and then became the norm. And now the norm is so complex that we're, we're bewildered into how to understand right. the complexity. So,
2: let me move to political power. You've alluded to it several times during the course of the first stage of this conversation. It does not strike me as terribly surprising, based upon your comments so far and what I know about your work, that you would be interested in critiquing power. You would be interested in critiquing certain aspects of power, certain types of power. But I can see that it might be confusing to people who think, what is this media studies guy all of a sudden writing about neoliberalism for? And oh, and, yeah. and, "And and who does he think he is? And yeah. so forth. So tell me a little bit about, about that book and about your work in that particular area more generally what you were trying to achieve and and whether you what the responses were and whether you thought yeah. you had achieved it
0: well let me just uh just one bit of background although my m- most of my work has been around media that's the the problem the object i'm most interested in um, i was also uh pretty taken early on with cultural studies as it's still known um and particularly the strand of cultural studies that came from the great literary theorist and sociologist of literature, Raymond Williams, who was professor of drama at Cambridge in the early 60s and early 70s, because he had a very special vision of why you should study media at all, and why you should study everyday cultural processes at all. And his idea was that in democracies that are very far from perfect, there's a massive gap between the sort of diagram, if you like, of how democracy should work, and the messy Actuality. forms of exclusion normally, but the occasional inclusion that is the reality, that you needed a much broader subject that could just listen out for that gap and the forms that it got translated into in terms of everyday politics or everyday cultural response and so on. And his notion there was cultural studies he took a while to develop that time, but they became what we call cultural studies. Now, cultural studies, like media studies, has also been attacked for many purposes, and often, rightly, it's gone into a sort of obscure jargon and whatever, which is very unhelpful. But that core vision, that the project of creating a democratic culture is deeply incomplete, actually has quite a bit in common with the John Dewey from political theory in the States and so on, But that's always guided my work and so I have written some books which are trying to tap into that and not specifically emphasising the media but instead emphasising the deeper patterns of exclusion and inclusion in culture. And so that was the the side of my work that I turned to when I wrote the book about voice and why voice matters in the uh, late 2000s. The reason, the specific motive for writing it was one that was common to so many people at the time which was Uh, despair at um, the apparently closed political discourse of the the Blair government in Britain and the Bush government in the States and the seemingly inescapable um, conclusion that there were no realities but market realities, that there was no way of building an adequate politics except by starting what markets happened to require and want. And this, for me, was unacceptable. Um, it excluded all the types of politics that I was interested in, not because I'm against markets. Of course, I'm not against markets.
2: Well, I, I wanted to clarify that. So this is more yeah. the, the, the... I can imagine this being one of two possible ways. Yeah. On the one hand, this could be, I believe X, and the powers that be deny X completely, and therefore I think it's important to have my view presented. Or it could be, there really are many different ways of of approaching problems. Things are much more sophisticated, much more complicated. There are many avenues to explore. Historians, political philosophers, philosophers, uh, members of uh, dramatists, literary figures, have depicted all sorts of tensions within society for centuries, and all of a sudden these guys who are running our governments are ignoring everything that's happened in the past 300 years, other than the one particular ideological strand that fits their purposes, and I think for the benefit of society we should ensure that people are at least made aware of what's going on and that there'd be broader choice. So I'm guessing
0: it was the second one. Yeah, way. you're right. And you've given a much nicer <laughs> account of the second one than the first, so it's like, it, it was the second. And, and I think the second for an important reason, which is that, as I've probably given the hint of, um, because I think it's fair to assume that there's been a lot of, often media-based, but also cultural deconstruction of standard power plays, um, Marxist or whatever, um, they exist. I, I, they're, they're fine. I didn't, that's not what I set out to be doing as an academic. I thought I could take them as a, a given, whether you disagree with the detail or not. I was always try, trying to find a different way in that would get to the sort of underlying conditions of those sort of power plays. So in my work on the media, it was the underlying conditions of the legitimacy of media institutions at all which underlie the particular games they play. Um, And we'll come back to that again because we were looking at all the changes they're now having to face, which makes it, I think, even more interesting. But in the cultural area, um, I I wouldn't say, my strength is definitely not looking at deconstructing particular political ideologies. I'm not a political scientist, I'm not a political critic, Uh, but what I was, wanted to get to the bottom of the sense of disempowerment that I felt, and I felt a number of people around me felt, that the values we thought were the starting points for politics, uh, uh, for us the only ones, but certainly at least possible starting points for politics around community, solidarity, um, possibly some measure of greater equality in society, voice, recognizing people as valid human subjects, were suddenly being trumped by a different set of values that could never hear those earlier values, that would literally erase them, efface them. So as I said, I'm not against markets at all. I agree with Amartya Sen when he said markets are often very good. They are a form of social experiment that's been immensely liberating in so many societies. I just certainly don't disagree with that. What I'm against is the ideology that markets, in the way they function, provide the only model for how society, something different, should function. And therefore, the only model for how politics should regulate how society should function. At least two big leaps being made in that sentence. And that was the trick which Milton Friedman, in trying to initially push a different notion of economics but make it speak very loudly to government as well for society and politics, played in the 1970s. And I was very struck when I look back at one of his his books, one of his more popular books, that he says at the beginning of it um, that how isolated he'd been at the beginning when he developed these ideas of giving total freedom to markets and stripping down the state completely. But he decided that uh, you had to have, for any change to come, you had to have the right resources lying around, the right ideas in place somewhere, because someone could grab them. And he said, I'm writing this book, I've forgotten the name of it, it's his famous book on freedom and markets. I'm writing this book, so those ideas are now somewhere around. Here are
2: the resources,
0: Here are the eventually resources. I will prevail. Someone's gonna listen to this someday, and then of course in the second edition he'd already influencing Th- Thatcher and Reagan. And I decided to write that sort of book, that the book that would give some, put some resources on the table that under some political circumstances, maybe not immediate ones, could be used. So what I became interested in, I tried to, it was my most personal book to date. Um, it was my most personal book to date. So I was trying to get to um, something that I could hold on to as someone who felt politically in despair at that point in the mid 2000s. And I decided it, it would be the basic value of voice. Not the fact of voice, because as many people pointed out to me, everyone's got voice today. At the time I finished the book, everyone had a blog, everyone had a phone, sure. a, and so on. Of course, voice is everywhere.
2: But that's, that's really, in a way, your point, right? I, I mean, it's a sense of denial of other voices. I mean, this, yeah. this ideology, if I understand you correctly, yeah. is is to... Uh, it, it involves... An, an exclusionary principle to to a wide variety of different voices and y- your argument it seems to me is is not so much my voice is the right one obviously you think your voice is the right one everyone thinks their voice is the right one but yeah. but but uh, subscribing to a larger picture that it, it is essential that my voice at least be heard or contended
0: with or or appreciated as as existing yes that's right and there's a there's a problem here with someone who's sit- Critical of voice would, would make him use to say, "Well, not everyone can be heard. Society is complex. You need all sorts of controlling of resources and so on, and mm. no one would sensibly deny that." So then, taking that to the next level, if we start from the principle that voice has to be respected in principle, but it can't always be delivered all the time, then we have to think about the organizational ways in which things can be done, uh, taking account of that value. And the problem for me in the neoliberal project was not necessarily that particular groups of people deny voice, although that may be true as well, Um, but that the very principle of giving weight to voice was overridden by the idea of market functioning. So, if you imagine the simple cases of corporate takeover, the mere fact that the markets had decided, due to stock market prices and others, that this company just had to take over this other one, meant there simply was no issue about whether the voices of the human individuals working for the second company should be registered anywhere. That process, you one didn't compute into the other because it were, was a
2: higher prioritization. Absolutely, was, the market they, dogma was, was, was at a higher level, and you can't possibly even conflict with
0: it. You that. couldn't translate, you they were just totally different types of thing. And then when you think about it, this is a notion of markets as the best. Uh, model for understanding social order and therefore political order that goes back until the early 19th century. It was Michel Foucault in his amazingly prescient lectures on neoliberalism in the early 80s in France who spotted this. Mm. This vision of the market as the only model of social order. This deeper notion of market fundamentalism, which doesn't just say markets are important, even says crazily markets never fail, which is of course false, but is grounded in a much deeper idea that we can't believe they fail. We can't take that into account because markets are the only real possible order for human complex living.
2: So it's together. axiomatic at some level. It's
0: axiomatic and that's what Freeman and so many others tried to achieve and that led to all sorts of Flowering a rational choice theory as an understanding of society rather than just of people playing games in markets. So I was trying to get at what was wrong with that when applied as a political doctrine, and this was around the time when the Blair government, alongside Bush and so on, of course, was making privatization not just an exciting experiment as it happened in Thatcher, but literally the only norm for running public services. Public services still, of course, common resources aimed at the public good, but could only now be run for reasons of rationality, or even worse, modernity, modernising, on the basis of market functioning. I thought there was something deeply wrong with this, but it was clearly not enough just to argue with the political dogma. That was itself hard enough, and in fact we still haven't got away from that. But I wanted to get at the values uh, that underpinned it, and where I turned to was a number of sources. I turned to philosophical writers for whom our um, need as human individuals to carry an account of ourselves, to have that account recognized by others, to be recognized as people in some sense, as people with such an account was so fundamental that we couldn't really imagine a culture worth living in without that value being respected. Um, So I stayed with those sort of writers, built that into a sort of broader theory and also was delighted to find common cause with a uh, writer such as the deva- development economist Amartya Sen, who in one sense would appear to be a very mainstream figure because he's listened to by the World Bank
1: and he is. Oh, he's won the Nobel, Nobel Prize. Economist. When you win Nobel the Nobel Prize,
0: Nobel Prize, you get listened yeah. to. But he's actually an extremely radical figure because from the early in his career, he's always insisted that economics made a deep mistake in the, around the 1810s, 1820s when the double science that Adam Smith had, the science of moral sentiments and the science of understanding how markets work got split apart mm. and economics just became the latter. Uh, and he insists that has to be put back together again. And we always need an ethical cri- critique of where our approaches to what we call the economy, which is just our ways of doing things together with resources, uh, translate into particular ways of life, which may or not may not be good lives, and he started raising that ethical question again. So that's sort of why I raised the book. It was an experimental book in the sense that I didn't expect to be heard by economists clearly, speaking from media and cultural studies and sociology. I hope possibly to be heard by a few politicians. That didn't happen, or even though I rushed the book out for the 2010 election, it it survived at most as a leaflet at one conference, but disappeared. But it has had a longer-term impact because people said to me they wanted to hear someone making that sort of
2: case. And that's presumably what you wanted. I mean, you really that's wanted a longer-term impact, right? It's nice, nice to have impacts all over the place, yeah. but if you had to choose, I'm guessing a longer-term impact is, is what you're Yes, your because I
0: think important. the only way one can change such a profound shift in thinking as occurred in the 70s and 80s is through the longer term, through validating other, other forms of value. So it's a book not so much about voice, but about the, the project of valuing voice i really valuing voice and meaning it and organizing society on that basis, or at least partly on that basis and not on the basis that markets matter
2: so I want to explore that a little bit because you've you've isolated i think a real a real issue in in any modern functioning state, which is there is a plethora of different voices of different people of different interests, and yet at the same time to be efficient to be effective, you have to have uh, you have to have a sense of coherence. You, you have to have a clear sense of, uh, uh, of the government of the day being able to enact in some reasonably rigorous way its views, which means that not every voice will be heard constantly. Not every voice will be paid attention to. So how do you balance those two things? You've highlighted the tension between them. Clearly, by ignoring every single other voice as that is counter to your own and by labeling it as as philosophically bankrupt and saying that your views are axiomatic that's not the way to go that's an extreme that's an extreme view whether your view is neoliberalism or communism or what have you it doesn't really matter if if you are uh, anathematizing every other view to your own then that's not a Uh, I think a terribly intellectually responsible approach on the other hand, the other extreme would be to say, well I'm just the representative of the people, I'm being elected and therefore every single decision of the day we're going to have an internet vote on or we're going to listen to all the voices and so forth, that's not a terribly coherent way to proceed either, so how do you
0: balance these two things? Well, no no one is near to solutions to this and I think um, the problem is not just to do with neoliberalism, there is a an overlapping problem which takes us back to the media side of my work and if you like the growing complexity of society um, which is that partly through the success of media industries um, all of us are more and more getting used at least to the idea that we might have a voice and it might be picked up somewhere we may not get the reality but the idea is not so strange an idea as it would have been in 1860 let alone 1560. That's creating enormous problems for democratic institutions because they're becoming less and less legitimate. Uh, They're also less and less able to control because of digitization of information, the flows of information about them. And this is making all institutions very unstable. Um, So the sustaining of democratic institutions is very difficult. At the same time, because of this political force to actively exclude certain types of a voice, the voices of trade unions traditionally, other forms of voices which interrupt market functioning. You've got a political reason why people are angry, cut out of the political process and not being listened to. So for various reasons around the same time, there is a need for political institutions to rethink themselves. I would argue for all institutions, so that they're more adequate to the possibilities of representation which now exist in a digital age. And they're a long way off uh, rising to that challenge. Uh, a value of voice won't be enough to get you there because that only gets you started down the road.
2: Uh, but it's, it's a start. It's a start.
0: And I think a second start will be to say, well, that's, we're restructuring an area of society or an industry or whatever. It's not enough simply to say that the market solution is enough. We have to look at whether that will match what the bulk of people affected by the process will want and what would be appropriate mechanisms for listening to them which will be complex and that's the third stage that we need to think much more sophisticatedly about what would be adequate mechanisms in such a much more complex and flat society um, for registering for us I say registering because it's not clearly just the same as literally everyone being heard all the time because then no one can be heard. Um, There's very little work on this. I'm interested, for example, in the work of a legal writer like Beth Novak from the States who was uh, Obama's e-government advisor in the early days of his first administration, who wrote a book called Wiki Government, a very insightful book, an unusual book, because she pointed out that not only do digital tools create possibilities of lots of people speaking, being consulted, but they actually create a challenge for instruments of, in institutions of government. They actually could refigure themselves. They could have different groups of experts created online for different topics. Right. They're failing to do that. She argues they need to rethink their legitimacy and organizational structures so that they allow that possibility more regularly in a way that doesn't undermine government totally, but of course will involve a reconfiguration of its authority and so on. These are very complicated changes, needless to say. So in writing the voice book, I was only pointing in a direction and it's not surprising that with the crisis of uh, the European, uh, the Euro crisis in 2008, 9, 10, the global financial crisis, the massive, complex problems that all governments had to deal with after that. It's not surprising that we haven't had much success in dealing with these underlying nuts and bolts issues about how the government can remain legitimate in the longer term.
2: But but these nuts and bolts issues are are very long term issues. I mean, I think if you take the very long term view of democracy, the democratic, the modern democratic project from from the 18th century, roughly onwards, I, I, these things don't happen overnight, of course. And and, and one of the things that certainly has uh, stimulated me listening to you talk and also having thought about these things a little bit before myself is an exploration of how much our modern organs of the state do depend on technology and the technology of their time. I mean, th- there's one way to look at a, a, a democracy as, a, as an active project and there's, there's another way to look at it as as a feasible project. So you can say, well, look, in Periclean Athens, everybody went down to the Agora, and they voted. And well, we can't do that now, because we have 300 million people in this particular country, and we don't have an Agora big enough for them all to come down. But then, on the other hand, you can say, well, hang on. We actually do have the tools. Getting back to what you were saying about Beth Novak. Nowadays, we can't actually consult the people. Do we Mm -hmm. want to be consulting the people? Mm -hmm. When representative democracy was first formulated, on the one hand, there was a sense, it seems to me, I'm no expert, but on the one hand, there was a sense that well, this is just feasible. I mean, it, it, you can't run a country any other way. If you're living in, in what was in whatever the 13 colonies of the United States at the time, you have a certain region. You have to send your guy off to Washington because you can't possibly consult with the people. So there's a, a, a practical need to have representative yeah. democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays, you can say, well, you don't actually have to have that practical need anymore. Is that the best need? Do we actually want to do that? Because we, we trust the judgment of particular individuals to reflect the greater good of the body politic. And so these are questions, I think, whose, uh, whose time has come to be reflected upon and re-reflected upon again. And technology is really a catalyst, it seems to me, to be able to do this. And books such as yours and books such as uh, ideas such as what Beth Novak had and, and other people, are really interesting spurs to have us rethink the mechanisms of how we govern ourselves and why we do things in the way that we do and to some extent i think that the, that the global economic crisis and all that is is a, is a bit of a it's a bit of a, a distraction right i mean of course it's there and of course if you're involved in it and of course if you're the government at the time you're concerned about that but the larger issue if you take the longer view what are governments doing in the 21st century? What do we mean by democracy? What do we mean by a functioning state? What do we mean by exporting democracy? What democracy do we export? How should we govern ourselves? These are fundamental issues, it seems to me, with society. And so I've gone on a rant. And so I should be ending with a question. I do this all the time. But um, it, 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 I'm encouraged about the fact that people are coming at this from different angles. And I'm just it seems to me that you're almost a bit defensive, in a way, when you say this. It's like, okay, well, I'm a media studies guy. <laughs> I'm saying this stuff about about democracy, so I've got my view. Yeah. Somebody who was in the Obama administration, she has her view about this. And yes, this really is important, and people should listen to me. Politicians ignored me. A couple of economists paid attention to me. But it seems to me this is something which really should be part of the social consciousness now. Yeah. I would like more people yeah. to be discussing this. Yeah. And who better than somebody who's actually thinking about how societies and media interact, because maybe media is the wrong word, strictly, but it seems to me, if we're thinking about how best to govern ourselves, um, well, who better than somebody who's looking at how we evaluate information that's coming to us and how we
0: process information? Do you agree with this, or am I just completely (laughs) off topic? Well, I don't know whether I'm being defensive. I'm being defensive in the sense I'm deliberately reflecting, in order to explain certain history, the field I'm from. Is in a, has been for a long time in a defensive position vis a really the traditional sciences, and that's a fact, and that affects our whole field. Personally, I don't feel at all defensive about these questions of value, um, because for the reasons you, you state, that I think they are, uh, the, the value of voice, uh, the value that it, the idea that it would be better to organize things, our way of doing things together, on the basis that, the accounts we each have of our lives should be taken into account in the organization of things. That I think is probably one of the only bases on which we can imagine a livable life together. It is fundamental. Of course, it's breached all the time in war and other power plays, but it is fundamental. A life, as Paul Recur, the philosopher says somewhere, a culture without narrative, without the possibility of carrying one's story and having it being bit, is literally not a culture, i.e. it's unlivable. And yet, that was the promise of neoliberalism and it's been enacted in many, many different forms. And I wouldn't agree with you that the financial crisis is completely irrelevant because I think it brought- I don't think i say no, it was completely no, irrelevant. No, but you know what I mean. But you <laughs> said, we, it, compared with the other big stuff, we could discount it a bit and in some ways that's right. But there was something very particular brought out by the financial crisis, but particularly by the, the knock-on effect on the Euro crisis in Southern Europe, which is that it brought home even two years only after the the nostrums of neoliberalism that markets will always deliver and they will never fail have been comprehensively proven to be false and admitted so even by someone like Alan Greenspan as he's now acknowledged in his recent book, nonetheless were being put into practice to override the democracies of Greece, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Um, Not on the basis that this is exactly what the politicians doing that wanted, there was no hostility to democracy, but on the basis of logic, on the basis this is the way things have to be. It's the axiomatic thing again. And it's on the basis the markets have decided, you now have, are you Greece ready for the challenge or not? Mm. And this notion of the markets deciding has its perfectly respectable logic of its own but the, the massive expansion of global capital and financial markets, and its expansion of really millions of fold since the late 70s and, and particularly the late 80s when market trading was liberalized, um, has meant that there is this colossal democratic deficit affecting all countries. It, it will affect America when its currency comes under threat if it does from the Chinese renminbi at some point in the future. Uh, and then we will certainly hear about it as a problem, assuming America still has some influence over global media at that point. Um, this is a problem affecting every society, that, that, that the structure of global capital and the transfer of resources that enables ordinary things to go on everywhere in sync um, is incompatible with delivering uh, the choice and the possibility of having an influence over the economy of those their own economy, of those very people. It, it, no one has yet worked how to do that. It is a really deep problem. Mm. You could also look more positively the same version of the same problem, in uh, a version of the same problem in relation to global warming. Clearly, most people think something needs to be done and it's very complex and it's great to look and certainly about exactly what should be done. Where things should be decided so that they can be done is deeply problematic. Is it the national level? Is it the global level is it arguably at the level of local communities where people can change certain things quickly, mm. and they might as well get on with changing those quickly and be given power to do so um, on the basis that the problem is unsolu- insoluble at higher levels. So even a problem like that, or even a problem that like perhaps the biggest problem, praising humanity today, raises this question about the level of which democracy should work, the timescale on which it needs to work. And I was very interested to read a political theorist like Pierre Rosenval from France, who wrote a book about democratic legitimacy a year or two ago, arguing that this, this problem of the sort of different timescales of democracy, the timescale of the election every five years, four years, and the timescale on which things need to be checked to know that the solutions still are legitimate with the people being affected, they're out of sync. And he points out that the early theorists of democracy were onto this about three years after the French Revolution and they didn't have a solution then. And somehow the problem got forgotten in the wash of history. It wasn't a good
2: time three years after the French
0: Revolution. (laughs) No, no, it wasn't. They had a few other things to think about. But staggeringly, they spotted that problem already from the beginning, as he points out. And we haven't solved it now and we are going to gradually have to move towards solutions. That then takes us on to the question, well, what, what can media contribute? Um, some of what I might have been talking about, discussing the power of media institutions, might in some sense sound anti-media, but I've never wanted to be anti-media. I just wanted to try to expose the power sources on which they rely so we can understand the matter. And I think paradoxically, um, some of the things that media can do, give voice, witness suffering, witness particular suffering in particular places and play it back to governments who precisely don't want to hear it, remains, of course, extremely important uh, and w- needs to be held on to even as the market pressures within the media industries makes it more and more to, to, difficult to deliver exactly that essential function.
2: So how do you see the future of media? We've talked about this a little bit yeah. uh, before you've alluded to yeah. it. and. How media has changed. What has happened because of the internet. Uh, how it is constantly changing. How it may have, in fact, reached a tipping point or gone past a tipping point. Um, what do you? What, what are your fearless predictions for the next
0: five or ten years? <laughs> there is no one who uh, wouldn't fear giving predictions. Fearful. Your fearful predictions. <laughs> well, I, let me let me give you the size of the problem and see why I think it is beyond prediction. Um, and that's the the view of most people in the media industries at the moment, no one knows where things are going. One is, on the one hand, you have a massive expansion of the things we call media, the platforms, the processes, the ways of receiving things that we call media, from three or four simple forms, which still exist, of course, to any number of other entry points, all of which can be linked together and linked back with the old media in an unpredictable sort of feedback loops. So, gets to the point where the Economist wrote a few years ago: "No one knows what a media company is anymore." And in a sense, that's true because we now treat as media companies as the leading the meat" versions of the media: Google, which doesn't make media; Facebook, which makes a platform uh, and allows us to make our media through YouTube and so on. For the
2: Twitter Congress itself is owned by Pearson Group, of course. Which yes, is, well, we you should, wouldn't necessarily get as a right, media. Uh, yeah,
0: books. And, <laughs> so, what is media is very uncertain. Secondly, coming out of that multiplicity is an even deeper uncertainty, but this goes right back to that fundamental point we started with about the special moment, causally speaking, of the audience. What are people doing with media? It becomes maximally more uncertain because there's so many things they could be doing and there's so many more relations between the things they're doing. Exponentially, the complexity grows. So we're now in a phase, I think, where people genuinely are doing new things which we don't have easy words for through media in the world. I try in my recent book to try and capture some of these things. So just to give you a simple example, um, the idea of showing or pointing used to be very simple. I point my finger at an interesting book or cake or meal to you. You look at it, you go and sample it and I've communicated with you simple, ostensive act. Now I can point to you, with me sitting in London, you sitting in Los Angeles, and me finding a link to an interesting article, and just, without comment, simply sending you the link, and you read it a minute later in Los Angeles. And I pointed to that thing. This is an astonishing extension of a very, very simple act that is basic to human communication, or simply showing, I've just done something, um, which is just, on into the flow of history it's disappeared but no i might have recorded it and i can show it to you wherever you are in the world I, in fact i can show it to a million people at once so every moment can be replayed on different levels in any combination and so on. these are extraordinary changes in the basic possibilities of action and we could go on, and on.
2: so what do you think this all means what do you what do you think it implies I to, think on a societal
0: level it's It's leading to, it's certainly not leading to a massive shift of power because precisely these new resources are the ones, exactly the resources over which at some level, big institutions are trying to get some level of control. Obviously they can't control what we do on YouTube or Facebook, that's not their interest. But controlling the platform, controlling the terms and conditions of the platform is something they're very interested in because they were interested in the data value of what we do. And I'll come back to that. But from our point of view as users, this is creating uncertainty. So um, although we're now in a grounded situation, we're talking to each other in a very focused way and we're recording it for a specific purpose, I don't know for certain that you don't have a phone in your pocket and you're recording my voice for other purposes, which you will shortly tweet and. I don't know. That. I do have a phone in my pocket, but it's, yeah. but I'm not okay. going to do anything. And you don't know stuff. I'm not doing the same, and we don't know there are other people listening to the raw, right. and we don't know what will happen to this image when you put it on the website, and it may be circulated in places none of us can predict, and so right. on and so. So there's, there's no, a loss uh, of control at the, some level. Uh, and this is a radical shift in the boundaries of communication situations, far beyond the televising. It's that the boundaries are in principle now ports in the ways that we actually don't fully understand because it depends on contingencies that are not in our control. So one question I think we're all asking now when we, we are in a, a situation is where is this? What is this here? It's not the same here as it was before we had digital communication. Similarly, because of the storing of information, we all now wonder when is this? This is actually now a time when if I say something silly in this interview and it's stored on your website and listened to, I may never escape for even in 20 years time, it may be coming back to haunt me in a way that was pretty unlikely unless I made the effort of inscribing something in a book that was printed and so when is this becomes a problem? And out of that comes a bigger problem is, what is the order in the situation? Which type of institution ultimately has more control than others? over the circulation of this type of information, its weight, whether it gets heard or not, whether it gets washed away by other information, and so on. Questions of order and power are much more difficult now. And I think, in terms of where this is going, I don't have an answers about the exact forms things are going to take. And anyone who predicted the next social media platform would either be extremely rich, or they would be- A liar. They'd be rich and silent, or they would be a fool and speaking. So we don't know. Um, but the idea that there will be some social media platforms, something that we will recognise a lineage back to where we are now, uh, clearly, this is a very important form that's emerged in the past five or six years, and it's going to continue in some form, with or without various constraints. So. We have the beginnings of an architecture. We're starting to understand, and I think it's raising some deep ethical questions. I mentioned ethics uh, mm-hmm. a few minutes ago, and I think these are the ones that are now becoming interesting.
2: Are privacy issues bothering you? Is privacy it, is, this, is, this is one, one of them. Is this the, uh, Edward Snowden? I'm dating myself yeah. for, for, the, for the when issue, but, <laughs> but uh, is well, this, I think this? he's not going to be forgotten for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> is this something? Is this one of the things that you're alluding to? Privacy
0: are there, are there more? is one. Um, uh, Privacy implies that we have something that we would assume to be private and there's a problem when it's made more public. I think we're in an even more troubled situation that we are now, if you take Facebook, often communicating with each other, needing to, um, where we're not quite sure exactly who we're communicating with or the parameters in which what we do will be used. It's no longer clear. And that's just one example of the sort of quandaries we're now facing. If we think of the issue around data, which gets us sort of into Snowden territory, but I would like to stress the corporate side of it rather than the state side. This is not just about the big bad state. This is about a whole infrastructure of surveillance, which is now the norm, which involves corporates as much if not more than states. Um, That is leading us to a situation where literally everything we do, every fiber of action and the texture of our lives is a data source and therefore a value source for corporations provided it happens on the platforms where we're encouraged to spend our time and no one knows what reaction there will be to this in the longer term there are shrieks of pain over certain things but then it subsides back into the banal normality of media as media always happens with media and yet i think we're getting beginning to get to a point where the costs of this infrastructure of being constantly connected, which is on the face of it a good thing, are so high that we may have rather unpredictable conflicts and unpredictable fractures. Such as? Well, we don't know what form they're going to take, but we... <sighs> Facebook fear that under certain age groups, uh, demand is falling for their product, but they'll be, uh, there will be other other platforms sure. and so on. But some of them with less surveillance than others, as we know. Um, but they have other global markets to, to go for. Uh, I don't know exactly what form this will take, because I think the shift that's happened is whereas the media infrastructure up until the late 80s was a relatively straightforward bounded thing. You either had a TV or you didn't. You either had five channels or one in radio, and you either have read a newspaper or you didn't. Now everyone is somehow in a universe of interconnected meaning, and the price of being in that is more or less to be tracked as they cross it. Um, they depend on that to reach others because in t- mass communication and personal communication are now overflowing in the same sort of space. So the option of being completely without a phone or completely without any form of internet resource uh, is pretty limited maybe. because it would yes, really you're an interior decorator. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe... I, I haven't met him recently, so would be <laughs> interesting to know what type of smartphone he now has. Maybe one with only music apps on it. I don't know. But the options of opting out are very limited because we have acquired a, a, a communications infrastructure and an information's infrastructure which is massively sophisticated whose workings none but the most sophisticated technical elites can understand. Whose interrelations are absolutely opaque and here I was very struck by a book by a legal theorist a year or two back called Julie, Julie Cohen uh, in a book called Configuring the Network Self where um, she argued, unusually I think for a legal theorists, many legal theorists are quite cautious in the way they put things, but she argued that there was something deeply authoritarian about this infrastructure. Not because there was any political intent, intent of those doing it, of course not. And they were just trying to make value.
2: But authoritarianism emerges somehow.
0: Authoritarianism in the sense that we can't accept, we we have no choice as she puts it, but to accept it and participate at some. Point. Yeah, because we have to operate, and we have to operate through this. There are very few alternative macro infrastructures, and the price of particip uh, taking using it, price of using it, is participation in some sense, generating data from which value can be created. And I think she's right. That I think, though we're in at the beginnings, the openings of this horizon, there is something troubling about the ethics of this. And I don't think it's any accident that in the past five or six years, more and more writers, initially on the margins perhaps, have started to raise ethical questions about our life in media. They're not like the voices of the 1970s and 80s crying in the wilderness, saying, Junk your TV, end your gerrymander in the States, you know, four bits of damage TV can do to you. They're not preaching, they're simply troubled by the quality of the lives we're now leading, which is so intensely media-fied, and the cost that has for us, our bodies, our personal relationships. So for example, Sherry Turkle, the Harvard psychologist, her book Alone Together, she was one of the first proselytizers of being online, on screen, deeply troubled by where this has got to. Or Jaron Lanier, the founder of virtual reality in the early 1990s, wrote a book called You're Not a Gadget, arguing that There are human values which are being trashed, overridden, by uh, a bet entirely on infrastructures which count, which measure, which create value through that, and leave little place for consultation or for time off the network.
2: Are these just voices in the
0: wilderness, do you think? Or or are these part of a growing
2: counterculture which will have a larger and larger
0: effect? I think they're not voices in the wilderness because both of those are very significant figures very significant figures originally on the inside of the development of computing and its embedding in our lives, now speaking out very strongly. Also the, the novelist, Dave, Dave Eggers, his novel last year, The Circle, is a powerful satire on the grand, partly self-deluding claims of ima- an imaginary mega media corporation, uh, which is trying to get total data about everyone on the planet and link it up in such a way that our lives online become remarkably simple, but the only price is that everything we do is tracked.
2: So, what what do I do if I'm listening to this and I'm I'm alarmed? I'm sitting here. I'm listening to Nick Goldry, uh portraying this uh, this this horrible uh, dystopia where 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 our lives are controlled. We're forced to be participating in in and through this. Uh, Totalitarian or tyrannical combination of, let's just call the media, but, but devices, or, or we have to be in this connected yeah. world. We have so little time for reflection. We, we extrapolate from where we are today and the angst that we have today, which makes such a cruel mockery out of these, these potential uh, happy days in the future that were reported when I was a small child, like, what are we going to do with all of our leisure time? And now, of <laughs> course, we're, we're in, this, in this scenario where people are feeling increasingly pressured, Yes. They're feeling increasingly connected in a, in a way which they're not necessarily desirous of, but they feel that they have to be. They're mediating their experiences in, in ways which are much less, much less direct and, and, and much less personally rewarding than they might otherwise be. And they're alarmed. And they hear you, a media expert and, and, and cultural theorist and social theorist, talking about
0: uh, these possibilities, and they become even more alarmed. So what do we do about it? Mm. Well, the first thing is to listen to the alarm. Don't discount it. Don't pretend this is unimportant or illegitimate or it's not what's expected and stay with it. Listen to it carefully. Listen to the values that are implicit uh, in that alarm and the other possibilities which you have less time for, which you are in practice discounting all the time when you give time to being online and being on Facebook. Think about those other possibilities It's the first thing. It's the same with the voice argument. One has to stay with what one implicitly values, but was encouraged to discount. Mm. Because if you discount it, then you've already sold the past. Right? Mm. So that's the first thing. Um, clearly it's not a matter of just walking away and turning our back on social media. The power of social media platforms to draw people together very fast, to go to a place they don't yet know for a topic they're not yet clear about within the next hour to cause then impact on the government is astonishing and it's a new form and the French revolutionaries would have loved to have had it. Uh, But they did their best with pamphlets and posters on wars and so on. Um, So we can't turn our back on that power, but we have to think about where the underlying uh, control over those resources and infrastructures is is stored, whether there are any other ways of... uh, a broader range of people getting control of that or questioning some of its actions that will require new forms of activism which we haven't yet seen. They will have to emerge in the, in the future. And I think the third thing to, um, it's very important to think about is beware of states or corporations or any other type of organization that has real power over you, in terms of taking away your passport or stopping you doing business or drawing taxes, real power over you. Beware when they themselves are very happy to uh, draw on this infrastructure to enhance their power. I think a lot of the debate around um, uh, Snowden uh, was phony in a way in that it it claimed that the only problem was the big bad state, forgetting that the bigger problem, the much bigger problem is the rise of corporate surveillance which is in fact The model on which states now are increasingly looking to rely, the British government has recently decided to phase out its national census on the basis that it doesn't need, it won't in the future, need to count its population every 10 years. And it now realizes there will be little point because every 10 years is just every 10 years. Meanwhile, at a price, uh, much more detailed data is available from the corporate sector all the time. They why not advertising
2: around? revenue they already have
0: all, all of this exactly stuff. so uh, governments who want big data about society can rely on big, big marketing data which is the phrase of Axiom the leading data collection company in the world and that reorientates the state in a new way and this is what I'm more worried about but this is what has to be may, not feared but may seen as an explicit possibility that there is a risk that states along with corporations, it seems innocent in the case of corporations, it's definitely not innocent in the case of the state, will increasingly see the very possibility of government, the very possibility of them having some greater level of power in an ordered space, call that government, um, as depending on permanent surveillance from all directions, without consent or with consent that's basically meaningless because it cannot be consent that's uh, um, aware of what it's consenting
2: to it's like agreeing to these things uh, when yeah. you log on something you you, you want to get to the
0: yeah. you want to make sure your internet connection works yeah. so you and just agree to whatever you have and you have no choice in that right. sense it's authoritarian as julie Curran says now when we get to that stage where that seems to be the only way of governing the practical way things are that neoliberalism depending on then we're not in neoliberalism we're in something different we're in the sort of de facto authoritarianism, which is built in, out of the organizing properties of very powerful information infrastructures, which we all want in some way. They've been massively uh, freeing and exciting and so on. But they have, because they're so large, they also have a dark side, which is very, very uh, dangerous and costly unless we develop languages and values which acknowledge the danger and start to talk about that and start to talk about that as a common project. Um, There's not a lot of work in this and I think it's a very new issue. I think I found that in opening up to students these sort of questions, they're extremely responsive because this is something that people do want to talk about. But This is not the, the, the main thing the governments are talking about at the
2: moment. And where will they talk about it? I mean, this brings me to to something that we've skirted around uh, a little bit. Uh, it starts from what is media studies, and is it does it just talk about the media? Does it talk about voices? Is it sociology? Is it anthropology? Is it is it cultural theory? Is it what What are we actually talking about? Where? So there is the question of the discipline, and then there is the question of. Uh, how these voices across society are going to get, get heard, and what role media studies, or whatever you would like to call yeah. it, will play in that development?
1: Well,
0: I think on the first point about disciplinary boundaries, they still remain important to some degree. I mean, media studies is a sort of interdisciplinary space, but people come from all sorts of backgrounds, sociology in my case, psychology, whatever, political science. But what brings them together is a common set of problems, which, as I've Try to bring across it, very deep problems about how f- the things we call media, the institutions we call media, are actually deeply implicated in new projects for organising society by many parties, including governments and corporations. Uh, so it's a problem about the very possibility of social order, as well as democratic political order. Um, so not surprisingly, people across many disciplinary realities are interested in those things as far as they're now seeing the digital media instruments, platforms, ways of storing data on which those platforms depend, um, ways of gathering data um, and metadata and so on. Uh, Many different people are interested in that. So now it becomes irrelevant whether your background was initially IT, literary (laughs) theory, (laughs) philosophy. If you care about those deep questions, and interesting, clear ways of formulating that speak across all disciplinary boundaries, then you're interested in the same sort of field as I am. So to give you an example, on Friday, we are setting up in, within LSE a law and communications research network. Uh, and we're gonna see where it goes. But what, that came out of a simple conversation with a professor in the law department, which I had, where he showed me the reading list for his course. And these were the very same books that I was thinking were important tell my students about. Of course, he does other stuff which I wouldn't do and vice versa, sure. but the core books, the, qu- the books which are opening the questions that I cared about most deeply, these were the same choices. That's a core overlap. Very interesting. This could never have happened 10, mm. 15 years ago. Uh, I suspect there are other similarities in other subjects too. So I think the disciplinary boundaries matter less, but this sense of prioritizing certain urgent questions about the possibilities of social order now and the role of media information infrastructures in mediating those possibilities, I think, are drawing a lot of people together. Uh, and I'd uh, be interested in conversation with any people, whatever disciplinary background they come from. That leads to the question of what is the role for the university. Um, it's obvious that the university has been under threat for many reasons to do with neoliberalism, general funding cuts, uh, uh, the new model in Britain of trying to move us from a publicly subsidised university system to a total market system about three years ago, um, and various forms of regulatory mechanisms which get in the way of research. These these things have been happening and they're facts. My view though, is that it's very important for those of us privileged enough to still have a, a role within something like a university, to not compromise in how we exercise that privilege be uncompromising in talking about the values which motivate our work, uh, the values which motivate our research and our sense of how we teach, um, and to communicate those to students without qualification or disguise. That's my commitment. And I have yet to find students who don't respond to that. Um, it might be that things will play differently in different countries, but that's, that's my approach. And I think that is the role that the academics still have left to them even if it's just a reserve role and it's increasingly diminishing and it's under various threats, which is to speak as if they meant it. What is next for Nick Goldrie specifically? Well, I, um, we're starting a project just with pilot money at the moment on the mediatization of government. In other words, it sounds rather grand and uh, pompous. It's actually about what happens to government on the inside. I mean, work of civil servants, the work of administration, the work of implementing policy on the ground, when the media process, the assumption that what's in the media is going to make a lot more difference than what isn't, and various people have more power over that than others, and they may not be you, uh, get inside the process of government. Do they distort the process of government? Do they undermine politicians' legitimate desire to think about what they need to do in the face of problems whose complexity has not been known in previous societies. It's, in other words, I'm interested in the, the question of whether government is, as we would like to understand, it is now possible in an age of profound mediatization. That is, media not just happening, but being built into the core of the processes we think of the basis of our lives. So that's one project I'm working on with a colleague. Um, I'm starting a book with a colleague in Germany, which will go back to um, Berger and Luckman's classic, sociological classic from the 1960s, The Social Construction of Reality, and try and rewrite that sort of bold social theoretical exploration from the point of view of societies where media are very important. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to call it the mediated construction of reality. Um, Berger and Luckmann, although they were writing in 1966 and knew that television and radio were there, only mention it very obliquely it didn't filter in to their theory in any way whatsoever perhaps because it wasn't that important yet Um, yes there were exceptional moments when media mattered but it just wasn't that important people could switch off the tv do all the other stuff and there was now there is no switching off because that we immediately go on to the next device which is Mm -hmm. linking back to what we just said so we're interested in how to rethink the notion of understanding the construction of social reality from the point of view of societies as a saturated media, rather than apparently having no media in them. That's gonna be an interesting project. That's my big to do, if you like, hardcore social theory without apologies for a society that is very, very different from the society in which our classic social theory was written. Um, and I'll be coming chair of department, so I'll have my oh. hand on the administrative <laughs> tiller too. So you will not doing of... much sleep, overall. <laughs> well, I think it's good to keep busy, and I think uh, the challenge of getting clearer about what the main issues are and just trying to speak as directly to those issues as one possibly can uh, goes on getting more exciting, but also more difficult. So that should that's exhilarating. Before I conclude, I just wanted to give you an
2: opportunity of uh, inserting anything else. Was there something that we didn't talk about that you'd like
0: to mention? Is there anything else that... Let uh, me... I'll just look at my notes. I've been very happy with the way it's gone, but let me just... Because I I, I decided to just let it flow. Yeah, yeah, of course. I like that. Um, Wasn't anything else. Um, We dealt with ethics. We dealt with ritual implicitly. Um, There's a little thing about uh, IT and big data... Hmm. No, you didn't. mentioned it a little bit, it but, but went, we didn't We talk went about more it, so. into the surveillance thing, but I think right. there's a deeper problem. Sure. Could we come at that of from course. the angle just of, re- um, if you could maybe, it's sort of a segue on the, the role of the universities. A lot of universities have been taken out of the myth of big data. They don't need my type of social science. If you could just give me a chance to respond to something like that. Yeah.
1: Well, okay. Uh, um, I, I, I can or ask shall you a I question. Just, well, uh, let, let me. Let see, see, just, no, so, no, 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 no. Okay.
2: Okay. I'll, I'll do this. So, um, in your LSE inaugural lecture that I had the pleasure of, uh, of viewing and uh, on, on, on YouTube, as it were, being <laughs> a, a wonderfully mediated society that this is, um, you mentioned several myths, and one of them is the myth of big
0: data. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah. This is a sort of myth that's coming at us quite quickly, and it's, in a sense, in the sequence with the older myths about our lives needing to be organized around central media and so on, which I've been talking about before. But it's in a way of a different sort because it's taking over the whole of the scientific establishment as well. Um, it's not that big data as such as a myth. Clearly, there are now capacities to do massive parallel calculations of millions of simultaneous equations, generating um, results which are non, could not be predicted, but which appear to be able to predict other forms things we want to understand. like in genomics you know, or something yeah, like genomics that. genomics or market behavior or whatever it might be. No, that's not trivial. Uh, similarly, the problem we have now, because so much data is being generated, including by our everyday interactions as, as it's tracked, the problem of interpreting all that is completely colossal. It's not just a matter of a boffin sitting down in the headquarters of Google and wondering over what Mr. Couldry was saying at 3.20 on a Tuesday afternoon. Are they boffins at Google? <laughs> I didn't I, Well, whatever they now call them. I was, I was trying to be nostalgic in yeah. the framing of this. Google. So. Yeah, Google, whatever they call them. That's inconceivable. Uh, it, the, the scale of interpretive tasks now is unimaginably large. That poses a challenge for the sociological imagination. Uh, and I stress the word imagination because there is a risk, and this is common in a lot of uh, Uh, airport books recently about them, wonders of big data and so on, that the academy itself will get taken over by a view of the challenge now for the sciences and the social sciences, that it is just to do more and more calculations, faster and faster, more and more parallel, to generate proxies, which will create, although we won't understand what they mean, uh, means of predicting this or that thing that we do want to understand, or we do want to follow at least, Uh, And we'll just plug the data in and just rely on that. And we'll give up on the act of interpretation. The editor of Wired, Chris Anderson, an influential figure wrote an essay in 2007 called The End of Theory, which was celebrating big theory. And he said, we don't now need hypotheses. We don't need any form of social science or even natural science, which tries to interpret whatever the hell is going on out there. We just just crunch the numbers? Crunch the numbers. That was his view. Now, it seems a joke, but that idea is actually being implemented in the skewing of uh, research finance towards that large-scale data crunching away from qualitative research, away from any form of social science, including big statistical work, which is based around the, the project of trying to interpret the social as if it was the result of, the, of an aggregate of human beings acting. Chris Anderson says in that essay, we don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, sorry, wh- what does he say? He says something like, um, who knows why they're doing what they're doing? The point is that they're doing it. It doesn't yeah. matter. I it guess doesn't matter because we can track it anyway, whatever the reason is. Of course it's true. For many purposes, we don't need to know why people are doing what they're doing, if for certain instrumental purposes we need to track certain things. But as a model of understanding society, and therefore as a model of governments looking over the shoulders of social scientists, understanding what they're trying to govern, this is truly catastrophic. Because it erases the space of the human subject and the subject that's trying to interpret that other human subject. it discounts what we know about what matters in our lives together. And this is a deeply disabling view of social science. And it directly contradicts the view of Weber, for whom sociology was the science of interpreting human action. And my argument in that speech is that whatever the boost behind that sort of rhetoric, we have to take it really seriously. Because if applied in any way at all, it will gradually erase or even cleanse the, the space of social science which isn't just a matter of concerns of social scientists like myself but it actually provides some of the basic languages for making justice claims for making claims for a new possible politics without an adequate social science or the ability to imagine it then we lose the possibility to reimagine the social and then we really do start to threaten the basis of politics even more fundamentally and totally than a Milton Friedman could have imagined
2: and, and it's not only social science. I mean, it, it, this is big enough, the tapestry. But Absolutely. I mean, but through this filter, you don't have Einstein, you don't have Shakespeare, you don't have Gandhi, you don't have, you don't have no, anything. No, you, you don't have Darwin.
0: Darwin, who sat in his garden when he was in his 80s, looking at worms and puzzling the way they moved leaves around and unders- realizing that they had a, a modicum of intelligence. They did it a certain way, not another. And he did that through observation because he wanted to interpret extraordinary, with an extraordinary vision, the, the, the intentions at some level of animals that had not been regarded as having intelligence. Now, yes, he could have, we could get to some of those conclusions, perhaps with big data, but not the notion of intention, not the notion of purpose. And this is a big debate across the sciences, and I think it has enormous public consequences, but, to get that clear to the wider public, we have to speak for the university. We have to speak for the university as a place where these types of values are held as important because they relate to underlying human values, which are not just those of uh, those lucky enough to pass through our walls.
2: Well, that's a very compelling call to arms. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Conversation. Conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual e-book and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Language and Culture, along with separate discussions with David Bellos, Michael Berry, Denny McQuayle, and Carol Patton. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.